Book Three, Chapter Nine of Lady Bridget in the Never Never Land by Rosa Prayed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirsty. If purgatory could hold worse torture than life held on that last evening Lady Bridget spent at Mungar, then neither she nor her husband would have been required to do any long expiation there. It would be difficult to say which of the two suffered the most. Probably McKeith, because he was the strongest. Equally, he showed it the least when the breaking moment had passed. Yet both husband and wife seemed to have covered their faces, hearts and souls with unrevealing masks. No, it was worse than that. Each was entirely aware of the mental and spiritual barrier which made it absolutely impossible for them to approach each other in the sense of reality. A barrier infinitely more forbidding than any material one of stone or iron, because it was living, poisoned, venomous as the fang of some monstrous deadly serpent, to come within its influence meant the death of love. There was not much more of the day to get through. Husband and wife both got through it in a fever of activity over details that seemed scarcely to matter. He busied himself with Ninnis, first explaining to the overseer, as briefly as he could, the necessity for Lady Bridget's voyage to England, a necessity that appealed to Ninnis's practical mind, particularly in the present financial emergency. It surprised him a little that McKeith should not himself see his wife off, but he also recognised practical reasons against that natural concession to sentiment. On the whole, it rather pleased him to find his employer ignoring sentiment, and he fully appreciated the confidence reposed in himself. The two men went over questions connected with the journey, overhauling the buggy so that springs, bars and bolts might be in order, seeing that the horses were in good condition, sending on Cudgee that very hour with a second pair in relay for the long stage of the morrow, when over fifty miles must be covered. There would be another pair at Old Duppo's, and, after a day and night of comparative rest, Alexander and Roxalana would be fresh for the last long stage of the journey. They calculated that under these provisions the railway terminus at Crocodile Creek might be reached on the eve of the third day, and there were many instructions and much careful arranging for Lady Bridget's comfort during the journey. Then there were letters to write, business calculations, a further overdraft to be applied for to the bank, pending the cattle sales. Would there be saleable cattle enough to meet demands and expenses of sinking fresh artesian bores now that the fire had destroyed all the best grass on the run? McKeith found no consolation in the prospect of his wife's riches. That only added gall to his bitterness, new fuel to his stubborn pride, new strength to the war between them. He sat brooding in his office, when the business letters were written, to the bank manager, to Captain Hallowell, the police magistrate at Louraville, to the manager of the Eastern and Australian Steam Navigation Depot, Louraville, enclosing a draft to pay the passage, to the captain of the boat advertised for that trip, who happened to be an acquaintance of his, all recommending Lady Bridget to the different people's care, all anticipating and arranging against every possible drawback to her comfort on the voyage, all carefully stating the object of her trip to England, business connected with the death of a near relative. Then, after the ghastly pretense of dinner, during which appearances were kept up unnecessarily before Maggie and the Malay boy, by a forced discussion of matter-of-fact details, looking out the exact time of putting in of the next E and A boat at Louraville, all of which he had already done, and pointing out to Bridget that she could catch it with a day to spare. There was food for the journey too, to be thought of, and other things to talk about. As soon as the meal was ended, McKeith went back to the office, 
and Bridget saw or heard no more of him that night. He did not come even to his dressing-room. She concluded that he was camping on the bunk in the office, and when her own packing was done, she lay in wakeful misery till dawn brought a troubled doze. Her packing was no great business, clothes for the voyage and a big furred cloak for warmth when she should arrive in England in the depths of winter, that was all. Everything else, her papers, knick-knacks, personal belongings, she just left as they were. Colin might do as he liked about them. She felt reckless and quite hard. Only one among those personal possessions moved her to despairing tears. It was a shriveled section of bark chopped from a gum tree, warped almost into a tube. She placed this carefully in the deepest drawer of her wardrobe. Would Colin ever find it there, and would he understand? All the time, through these preparations, strangely enough, she did not think of any possible future in connection with Willoughby Maule. The events of the past few days seemed to have driven him outside her immediate horizon. When she came out in the morning dressed for her journey, she found her husband in the veranda, waiting to strap up and carry out her baggage. Scarcely a word passed between them. They did not even breakfast together. He said he had been up early, and had had his breakfast already, but he watched her trying to eat while he moved about collecting things for her journey, and he poured out the coffee and begged her to drink it. While he was there, Cheng Sing brought in the basket of food he must have ordered for the buggy, and there was Fo Wang too, the gardener, with fresh lettuce and watercress, and a supply of cool green cabbage leaves, in which he had packed a few early flatstone peaches and some Brazilian cherries. Lady Bridget thanked them with the ghost of her old sweetness, and they promised to have the garden very good, Taiyat number one, and to make plenty nice dishes for the boss during her absence. While they stood at the French window, McKeith filled flasks with wine and spirits, and packed quinine and different medicines he had prepared in case of her needing them. Then, after showing her the different bottles, he took the supply out to Ninnis to be put in the buggy. Everything was ready now. The buggy packed, the hood unslung so that it could be put up and down in protection against sun or rain. This last, alas, an improbable eventuality. Alexander and Roxalana were champing their bits. Ninnis, in a new cabbage-tree hat and clean puggery, wearing the light coat he only put on when in the society of ladies he wished to honour, was standing by the front wheels examining the lash of his driving whip. McKeith had given him his last directions. There was nothing now to wait for. McKeith went slowly up the steps of the back veranda and in at the French window of the sitting-room where Bridget had been watching, waiting. At his appearance she went back into the room. She stood quite still, small, shadowy, the little bit of her face which showed between the folds of her motor-veil, where it was tied down under her chin very pale, and the eyes within their red narrowed lids dry and bright. "'Are you ready, Bridget?' he asked. "'Yes.' He came close and took a little bag she was holding out of her hands, carried it to the back veranda, and told one of the Chinamen to give it to Mr. Ninnis, all, it seemed to her, to evade farewells. She called him back in a hard voice. "'Colin, I've left my keys.' pointing to a sealed and addressed envelope on her own writing-table. "'There are a few things of value, some you have given me, in the drawers.' "'I will take care of them,' he answered hoarsely. They stood fronting each other, and their eyes both smarting, agonised, stared at each other out of the pale-drawn faces. "'Colin,' she said, and held out her hands. 
Aren't you going to say good-bye? He took her hands. His burning look met hers for an instant and dropped. There was always the poisonous wall which their soul's vision might not pierce, through which their yearning lips might not touch. For an instant, too, the hardness of his face was broken by a spasm of emotion. The grip of his hands on hers was like that of a steel vice. She winced at the pain of it. He dropped her hand suddenly and moved back a step. Goodbye, Bridget. Is that all you have to say? All? He stuttered helplessly. I, I can't. There's nothing to say. Nothing? You let me go, like this, without one word of apology, of regret. I think that at least you owe me courtesy. Her tone lashed him. He seemed to be struggling with his tongue-tied speech. When words came, they rushed out in fierce jerks. I'll say this, though where's the good of talking? What does it amount to, anyway, when you're down on the bedrock and there's nothing left to give up but the whole show and start afresh as best you can? I'll say this. I've never pretended to find manners. I leave them to others. I'm just a rough bushman, no better and no worse. Apology? That's my apology, as for regret. My God, isn't it all one huge regret? No, I won't say that, because there are some things I can't regret for myself. For you I do regret them. I was an insane ass ever to imagine that I and my way of living could ever fit in with a woman brought up like you. The incompatibilities were bound to come out. Incompatibilities of temper, education, breeding, outlook on things. They were bound to separate us sooner or later. I'm glad that it's sooner, because that gives you a chance of getting back into your old conditions before you've grown different in yourself. Dried up, soured. Maybe lost your health, roughing it through bad times in the bush. As it is, you'll get out all right. Never fear that I won't see you get out all right. And you? she put in. Me? I don't count. I don't care. A man's not like a woman. I've always been a fighter, and I've never been downed in my life. I'm not going to be downed this time. I shall make good. Sometime. Somehow. I'm not the sort of small potato that drops to the bottom of the bag in the big shake-up. She winced visibly. He read distaste in her slight gesture, in the expression of her eyes. It was true that the man's pugnacious egoism, a lower side of him asserting itself just then, had always jarred upon her finer taste. He recognised this subconsciously, and his self-esteem revolted at it. "'You needn't be afraid,' he exclaimed harshly. "'If I wanted to hold to my rights and keep you here with me, what has happened would prevent me. I've got too much pride to hang on to the skirts of a rich wife. But you won't be harmed. I don't know yet, but I believe there's a way by which you can win through straight and square.' no smirch that you need mind, and if there is, whatever the way of it is, I'll do my best to bring you out all right. You are generous, her eyes flashed, but her voice was coldly bitter. May I ask what you propose to do? There's no use, he said heavily. I told you talking was no good, now. I've got my own ideas. Then if that's how you feel, the sooner I go, the better pleased you will be, she returned hysterically. Oh, I'm ready to go. He moved to the steps, not answering at once. Then he said, "'The buggy is waiting. Will you come?' He went down the steps in front of her, but stopped at the bottom to help her, for her foot had stumbled on the edge of the veranda. His strong arm upheld her until she was on the gravel. The touch of his fingers on her arm brought home the incredible horror of it all, the suddenness, the brutality. 
she pulled her veil hastily over her face to hide the gush of tears she could not speak for the choking lump in her throat he released her at once and strode on not another word passed between them ninnis greeted her with gruff cordiality began a sort of speech about the cause of her departure condolence and congratulations stupidly mixed mcKeith impatiently cut him short all right ninnis get up and mind the horses are fresh they'll want a bit of driving at the start he helped bridget to her seat tucked the brown linen coverlet round her knees in doing so he bent his head she thought he had dropped something then through the thin linen of the covering and her light summer garments she felt the pressure of his burning lips as though they were touching her flesh she bent forward their eyes met in a wild look just for a second the horses plunged under ninnis's hands on the reins mcKeith sprang back whoa gee on then ninnis called out good-bye boss you can trust me to look well after her ladyship be back again as soon as i can and if colin spoke the sound did not carry to his wife's ears her last impression of him as the buggy swayed and rattled down the hill was again the dogged droop of his great shoulders it was too late now she felt that the furies were pursuing her ah but the end had come come with such hideous misconception every word spoken and there had been so few in comparison with the immensity of the occasion a hopeless blunder it had been the tussle of two opposing temperaments it was like the rasping steel of a cross-cut saw against the hard heavy grain of an iron-bark gum-log then the extraordinary involvements of circumstance each incident big and little dovetailing and hastening the onward sweep of catastrophe it seemed as though fate had cunningly engineered the forces on every plane so that there should be no escape for her victims like almost all the tragedies of ordinary human life this one had been too swift in its action to allow of suitable dialogue or setting end of book three chapter nine